So Lord, um, we just thank you that you're really, really good. And we thank you that you have things to say to folks uh, that I could never come up with and, and that I'm certainly not smart enough to come up with. So Lord, we just ask that, um, Lord, that you would, you would speak to the deepest parts of people's hearts and that, that the message that, that you have for them would take home and that it would take right on the heart. Uh, I just ask that I get out of the way. So we ask you in Jesus' name. Alright, so tonight we're talking about um, Acts chapter 9. And that specifically is the chapter where Paul, right, and if, if you're not familiar with um, who that is, Paul is the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, um, where Paul goes from being a very passionate, zealous uh, Jewish leader who was at least condoning the killing of Christians um, to becoming a Christian himself, who was eventually killed for being a Christian. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very exciting topic, but it's, it's a very uh, kind of complicated one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to bring this in here uh, on a bit of a focus. And what I'd like to do is actually start at the end of Paul's journey. Right? The end of Paul's life. So if you... You don't have to turn anything on. I'm trying in my own life to focus my attention on things, so I didn't want to have a scripture at the top or anything like that. I just want to sort of share it here together. So, um, Philippians 3, it's at the end of Paul's life. Uh, it's about 30 years after Paul has converted and become a Christian. And it's just a few years before he was beheaded in Rome for being a Christian. And he says this to the church. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And if you're like me, you grew up in church hearing that or you've read that, and it kind of makes sense as that's the thing that Christians think, and that's the thing that Paul thought. Uh, it's, it's sort of sort of packaged in a way, but I think a lot of times what we miss is what it was that Paul lost or what he gave up to gain Christ. Right? And that's what Acts chapter 9 gives us a chance to see. And so, two weeks ago, we heard about Stephen's death. Stephen was a follower of Jesus. He was very passionate, very uh, on fire for the Lord, and the Jews um, at the time came against him, and he very passionately let them know that they had killed the Messiah. Uh, that there was hope, and the Jews in turn killed him, and standing in this scene is a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was at that point holding coats. Um, and now we, uh, we pick up with Saul in chapter 9. Um, but what do we know about Saul? So Saul was this guy who was on the fringes of the crowd, who later became the center of the entire story for Christian history. If it weren't Paul, we probably wouldn't be meeting here today. So we know that Paul was two things. He was a Jew, and he was a Roman citizen. And those didn't have to go hand in hand. Um, what we know of Roman citizens is that for him not to have been born into it means that his family was probably very influential. They had a lot to offer the empire. And so in that way, the Romans gave his family citizenship, which afforded him rights and and all sorts of things that non-citizens could not. Um, 
We also know that he was educated in two different traditions. He was educated as a Greek, right, or in the classical tradition, um, which, um, just to ground it in today with my, my, my personal background, uh, Great Hearts, which you know, says we provide a classical education, they're actually harkening back to the education that Paul received. So this was, this was a time when, when people were trained athletically, they were trained in rhetoric, they were trained in logic, they were trained rigorously, but it wasn't something given to everyone. We also know that he was trained as a Jew, and not just as a Jew, as a rabbi. So he has a tremendous educational credential, in which case he's able to speak to both groups of people. And we see that at the end of, of chapter 9, which we'll get to in a second. Um, we also know that he was very passionate about his faith. We knew that he was so passionate that he would at least condone the killing of what he thought were heretics, right? people that were offensive to his God or his notion of his God. And we knew that later he would go and drag people into prison for offending his notion of who God is. We knew that he was a very, very passionate person about God. Um, and as I mentioned, he, he was a rabbi, but he wasn't just any rabbi. There, there's some pieces in here that to pull out. Paul was able to get a seat with the leaders in Jerusalem, with the most influential Jews in the world at that time. And not only to get an audience with them, he was able to get their blessing to do things. Right? So you can imagine today how many of us can go to Washington, D.C. We're not talking about like state governments. You can go to Washington, D.C., have a seat with uh, the House leaders, right, and have them bless your ideas. What kind of political influence does a person have? Paul had that. He had, like, the full package, right? He was deeply educated. He was educated in multiple traditions. He was um, clearly coming from a well-off family. He was an influential family. He himself was then influential within his own spheres, and he was a passionate lover of God and his own understanding of and then that brings us to chapter 9. It says, But Saul, still beating threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, not everyone can do that, right? And asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, in this case Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into the mountain. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Jesus look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, and the kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So as I was reading that, knowing that I had to teach on it, there were a lot of messages that I could have There were a lot of questions that I could have asked. Right? Uh, in fact, I think that we probably have a book deal in here somewhere. Someone just writes 50 messages on this passage. Um, but that being said, I, and, and those of you who know me, I'm reluctant to say, like, the Lord told me this. But I really feel like the Lord said, um, focus on this verse. For, or, for I will show him how much he must suffer for this. Um, and so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to talk about suffering in the context of Paul, what it means for us. So if you follow the rest of this story, right, or the rest of these verses, um, you see that immediately Paul gets up and starts arguing with the Jews and the Greeks, right, making use of both of his educations, both of his influence, and arguing with them both Right, so the Jews were zealous about protecting their notion of God. I, I'm not going to lie, I don't know a lot about um, Greek culture at this time other than sort of the, what we've preserved in, in broad pictures in classical education and classical arts. But I do know that whatever he said got him angry enough for them to kill him, or at least want to kill him. And so he had to escape the city from a basket, or in a basket, through a window. Right? And so begin the sufferings of Paul for the gospel. Um, so go down a few more books, a few more years in Paul's life, and you know this in 2 Corinthians, right, where, where uh, the church in Corinth was questioning his legitimacy. And he says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, people, take a breath, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me, uh, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Right? Who is made to fall, and, and, I, and, and, and I am not weak? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul suffered a lot of stuff, right? Like, he had roughly 40 years after his conversion that are really marked by suffering and really hard work. And so we have to ask ourselves, why did God, and why did Paul, right? Because Paul, so the book of Acts is written by a man named Luke, right? Luke was a physician who was functioning as a historian. He wrote um, the book of Luke, and then Acts is meant to be sort of um, the, the second act of the story, if you, were, if you will. So you can think of the story of Jesus, the story of uh, the apostles after Jesus. Paul made it a point for Luke to write, and God said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's So why? Why did Paul say it? Why did God say it? 
and I have an idea that I think applies to us too. So, um, before I go on, I feel like it's important to offer sort of a brief footnote about suffering and why, why bad things happen. Um, there are a lot of different theological takes on suffering. Uh, even different religions take different standpoints at it, or different uh, approaches to understanding it. Uh, I've read critical scholarship of uh, Christianity that, that actually says that in a lot of ways the Bible doesn't really resolve that issue. While all of that is above my favorite, um, I think that if we use Job and Paul as two examples, that there are these two things that we can know about suffering. Right? And the Bible gives us a lot of things to know about suffering. But if, if we take Job as an example, I don't think it's our place to know why it happens. Right? The why isn't, isn't necessarily for us to know. And that's sort of at the heart of the book of Job, that Job experiences these things and then sees the glory of God and just says, Oh, lowly man that I am, how could I know your ways? And if we take Paul's uh, teachings in Romans, we know that God has a plan to redeem all of it, right? For his glory and for his benefit. So with that in mind, let's approach this question of why did why did God say, I'll show Paul how much he has to So as, as a young man, as a young Christian, I'm probably still a young man, um, I used to think that God was just getting even with Paul, right? Paul, Paul did some dumb stuff, and God was trying to show him how, you know, how much he, he needed to pay for that. But Paul himself says that's not the way it works, right? God doesn't get even with Christians because it was paid for on the cross. It was all taken. Um, for us today, when things happen to us, God's not getting even with us. People who say that forget that Paul said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ So God wasn't getting even with Paul, right? He wasn't, he wasn't sticking it to him. What was he doing? We also know from Paul's teaching that God disciplines Christians. Right? He, he disciplines them. That when you're living in sin, that an act of love can be to let your sin play out in your life in such a way that you realize how sick it is and it brings you back to God. And I'm sure Paul had a ton of sin in his life, right? Like, we all do. But I don't think that's what's happening here either, because he's suffering for the sake of the gospel, right? So what was going on? And I want to pose this to you as a possible answer is that Paul was uniquely positioned to influence multiple sectors of society, right? He was educated as a Greek, he was educated as a Jew. He came from an influential family. He himself carried an influence that most people don't have. Um, and he was passionate for God. And so if he was going to influence the world in the way that God had it planned for him, then he had to understand some things really really deeply. Like he had to understand what the kingdom of God was really, really well. Because if he didn't, he couldn't communicate it in such a way that it would get to us today and transform our lives. And so as I think about Paul's suffering, I think about the parable of Jesus. Right? We talked about the kingdom for about two months, a month and a half ago. And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field that a man finds sells it. Everything that he has and then buys it. 
So what he's getting at is that if we are believers in Jesus, if we're citizens of the kingdom, if we're Christians, then our lives should be marked by understanding something that's, that doesn't make sense to people, that's hidden, that we lose everything to gain this hidden thing that we believe or we know is there, and that benefits us so much more than the things that we could have held on to but would have missed out gaining on had we not gotten rid of them to gain that thing. So that was a very logically complex sentence, but I hope you, you get the point. Um, and so then that brings us back to Philippians 3, right? Where Paul said to the Philippian church, but also to us, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So Paul, all the things that positioned Paul well, he actually lost them. He lost money, he lost power, he lost influence, prestige, his health, his safety, his friends, his family, and ultimately his life. Because he knew that he gained something deeper and more valuable than all of that stuff combined. And it was that understanding that laid the foundation for all of Christian history and all of Christian we wouldn't be here today if he didn't get it. And I believe he had to get it. Or in order to get it, he had to suffer. And so God was blessing him with that gift. So what matter, like, why does that matter to us? Right? We, should, we should all thank Paul. We should thank God for giving him that. Right? But on a practical level, we all suffer. Right? Like, bad things happen. Hard things happen. Maybe they're not getting shipwrecked and getting stuck in the ocean, right? Maybe they're not like getting bit by snakes and then getting stoned, and you know, like our families leave us because we believe something crazy. But bad stuff happens, and stuff that stinks happens. And I don't know that it's for us to know why, but it is for us to know that God can and will redeem it, right? And the other thing to consider in all of that is that God has uniquely all of us within certain sectors and certain spheres. All of us. Anywhere down to just your family, right? Your kids, your husband, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, whatever they may be. All the way up to you name it. We have some pretty cool people here that do incredible things that have you know, really powerful numbers. God made each of us unique to influence the sectors that we are in in certain ways for the kingdom. And I would challenge you to think that when bad things happen, or when hard things happen, God's giving you an opportunity to teach you something about the kingdom that's going to equip you to change your sphere in such a way that you can bring the kingdom and only right? So I'd like to have some sort of practical story, and I would be lying if I had some neat like package story of my life that I could just throw out here. This is something I'm learning about and I'm making myself, but uh, just this week I had some things happen that I'm, I'm processing through and I figured at a minimum I, I should just share them with you guys to give you an idea of how this is playing out right now. And so for those of you who don't know, I'm getting a PhD. It's been a very long process. 
Um, and four years ago when I started, uh, I had a situation where the people who should have been helping me were not helping me. And that was very, very stressful and scary. And I felt like God said, I'm doing that so that you can recognize that I'm really the one that's playing that role in your life. That I'm the one that's advising you through all of this. Um, and there have been different times where I believe that in different, different levels, right? Um, but just recently, I was in a situation where the fact that the folks who should have been taking care of me or not got really scared for me and, and really bad. And I had an opportunity for a uh, faculty member to help me. And I signed on to this project, and I was like, there, 110% ready to help, awesome. And I was very politely told, your job is just to be quiet and do work. That was it. And I found out that they've actually you know, gone on, and they are doing the things that they should be doing to help students on their own from the work that I did, and just leaving me behind again. And, and that, it doesn't only hurt, it, it's, it creates in some ways a sense of panic, right? For me, because I have this problem I have But I remind, I'm reminded of God's promise, right? That he's my, he's my caretaker. And that really has to sit deep. And I really have to believe that. And I also have to learn a lot of things about the people who are treating me this way, right? About their fallenness, and about God's role in their life, and what is it to love someone who may in fact be hurting you or, or using you in some way. Um, and come last week, through a truly miraculous circumstance, uh, I, along with someone else that I work with, was approached by a group of people who are hugely influential in national policy and politics. Um, and we were asked to contribute our ideas to them on a fairly regular basis. That shouldn't happen. Like, I'm not that cool. I'm not that smart. Um, I don't, I don't, you can go to a university that should be popping people into that sphere, right? Like, nothing about me looks like I should be doing that. But they not only asked us to contribute, they asked us to keep doing it. And so now all of a sudden I'm in a position, in a sphere of influence, where I'm able to bring in people who I was looking to for help, and to help them. It's kind of crazy. And what I couldn't do, and I struggle, I agree this is an honest struggle for me, is I could protect my turf. I could act within the culture of the world I live in, right? Because all they're doing is protecting the things that they were afraid they were going to lose. Or I could act in alignment with the gospel and give it away directly. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. But it has been very, very hard. And so, as I think to all of us, right, how do we, how do we handle hard things in a way that let us walk into the calling that God has for our lives to influence the spheres that He's placed us in? The only thing I can think of is how uh, Luke ended that uh, chapter with Paul, or that set of verses, which was that he said, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you can only do that, right? Those things can only be redeemed in the presence of God, right? It's God in you that does that stuff. Because I am struggling because I am inclined to I'm inclined to be afraid. I'm inclined to be broken in selfishness. The power of God in me 
that even allows me to take this much of a step towards holiness. And I think that has to be the case for all of us, right? And so what I'm going to ask you to do now is just think about something in your life, right? Think about something that's happening you don't know why. And maybe it's not your job to know why. But you do know that there is a God who wants to redeem it in such a way that you can walk into the calling that you need. And so with that, we're going to bring that in the presence of God. And Griffin Autumn are going to complete some worship. And um, yeah, we'll just let it go from there. Before they start, let's just pray real quick and along and about them. So Lord, um, we thank you that you're a God who redeems really part of things. And God, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and beyond what we could ever imagine. And so Lord, we just offer up to you um, those things that we don't know why they're happening, but we believe that you're good enough to redeem them.